my most memorable combat sortie involved working with Apaches, and it was just kind of an interesting, uh, interesting mission. Seatside, Altura Zero Eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Fire protector. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the podcast over on Patreon. Thanks to those who've taken the time to leave a rating review and follow the show over on Spotify and iTunes. I appreciate you guys doing that. If you're watching this, as always, thanks for leaving a comment. Thanks for liking the video and checking that out. Today, got to sit down with my buddy Habu. This one has been a long time coming. But we crossed paths at Southern Fun finally in person. Unfortunately, I have the E3 aviation team there. If you're looking to launch your aviation career or if you're just looking for an awesome experience in the aviation world, check out E3 Aviation. A lot of great content, a lot of great experiences, a lot of great people involved, as well as some great discounts. If you're into that kind of thing, I got that link down below. And again, thanks to E3 Aviation for making this interview possible. We sat down at Sun and Fun Habu, started his career flying in the backseat of the F-15E as a WIZO, a weapon systems operator, before going to pilot training and then ultimately moving on to fly the A-10, which he flew for quite some time. He was the A-10 demo pilot at one point. So it was fun to be able to sit down at Sun and Fun and chat with Abu. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. So that being said, let's jump into it with Abu. <laughs> What's up, everyone? Excited to be sitting here with Habu, man. This is, uh, I've actually had you on my radar scope to pin down an interview with you. And finally, I was like, when you send me a message, you're gonna be at Sun and Fun. I was like, this is gonna be perfect. So if you're listening or if you're watching, it's watching, it's easy to see we're sitting in front of Crazy Horse, yeah, in front of Lee Lauterbach, Stallion 51, which we both flown uh, on his wing. But if you're listening, it might be a little loud because occasionally <laughs> there's an airplane flying around or people walking around. But Habu, man, it's finally, it's great to be able to link up and chat and hear a little about your story and uh yeah absolutely man. thanks for having me for sure uh, we've got obviously a little bit of a history doing the demo stuff together so uh but before we get too much started i'll start off that i i owe uh rain a little gift of gratitude here so uh rain had previously uh been in the dubai air show and he got a call to help out and he was unable for whatever reason it was but uh mentioned me by name and so i got uh, probably the best you know uh good deal thing that happened in my 21 years in the airport just to go uh, be the air boss for the Dubai Air so so this is for you buddy dude so yeah I appreciate that man. man yeah well I'm, I'm I was we were kind of talking beforehand you know it's a small Air Force small network it's cool to be able to help one another out the Dubai Air Show if anyone hasn't been is pretty incredible I mean sure. it's massive on a scale that's unseen, I think, anywhere else. Sure. Maybe the Paris, I never went to Paris Air Show, right. but the fact that you gotta jump in there and capture that good deal, and they didn't go to waste, because no, you don't want to go to someone you don't know. You yeah. gotta hook a brother up, so. No, everybody there was great. The air show itself was spectacular. Just It was almost like being on a uh, you know, Star Wars episode, all these different uniforms, all these different things going on, and all these countries, and people are selling weapons and helmets and all these <laughs> things, so it was pretty, pretty spectacular watching some of the civilian and the military uh, performances there. I, I watched the Russian Knights perform in the, in the Su-27, you know, yeah. so that was pretty interesting as well. And then, uh, and then just being in Dubai and experiencing that was pretty, pretty cool, so. The one thing from the show that I, it's still etched in my mind, 
So it's it's almost comical. They have like the small little elevator that you ride up to the air boss brief yeah. every day. Yep. So one morning I get onto the elevator and then two Su-35 pilots get onto the elevator. Right. And then three Chinese J-10 pilots <laughs> right. get on the elevator. And like no one's talking to one another. It's the elevator music playing sure. and you're just like, cool. We're just yeah. here to hang out. I will say the the Russians, it was the chief test pilots for the Sukhoi Design Bureau. Okay. And like one of his assistant chief test pilots. And they were very friendly. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted to see the F-22, which we had sure. sitting on static. And so anyone could go see it. So, hey, sure. But we would also like to go see the Su-35. Right. So we, we had to show them the F-22 first, which like, okay, that's yep. fine. And then the next day we went and got a tour where we're able to walk up underneath that Su-35. Uh, and then, you know, there's like a million cameras sure. on you just right. watching you. Yeah. So it's very interesting to see like the geopolitics and Absolutely. just things that are going on. And yeah, they had the, uh, the checkmate display there as well. Okay. So they had it covered up and it was in this big, uh, big covered, you know, uh, display and you could hear the bass like bumping out of it. It was like, so we finally got to go in on the last day and it was like laser shows, like being in a nightclub and, you know, the whole display, the way that they were talking about the Checkmate and all its capabilities and stuff like that. So was that the unveiling of Checkmate? For the yeah, I don't know. I, I hadn't really followed it that much up until right. that point. So I didn't, you know, I was kind of surprised to see it there. And we didn't really even think about trying to go in there until, you know, towards the last, the end of it. And uh, we just decided, hey, we're going to stay in the line and see if they'll let us in. And they did. You know, they were very excited that we were taking pictures with it and stuff like that. Yeah, so <laughs> I bet they were. Yeah. It was interesting to walk around there, too, because I know, yeah, they were Russians. They had uh, whatever, you know, their surface air missile defense sure. companies. I forget you know, who right. makes what. But, you know, SA-17s, they got all the brochures hanging out there. So you just walk around. Yeah. But we rounded the corner for one, and it was the Russian Space Agency. Okay. And it was it was comical, just the overtness of this. Right. But as we're standing at the counter, just kind of looking at some of their stuff, they're like, oh, Americans? And they reach down below the counter and pick up these two boxes and hand them to us. You open it up and it's a miniature satellite, which looks really cool, yeah. but it was USB drives. Oh, and so you're like, cool. Yeah, yeah I'll plug everything Yeah, I'm absolutely yeah. not gonna use this at right. all, but so it's, sure. we start mixing everyone in those worlds. It's uh, yeah. it's quite interesting, but yeah, cool, man. I'm glad you got to do that. Yeah, thanks and, uh, again, man, that was great. Yeah, happy you're happy to serve. Thanks yeah, for the bottle, sure. uh, not needed, but uh, I really do appreciate it. Crack the open later. So dude, let's back up. Can you tell me a little bit about you? Uh, where where did you get the hook to go fly? Where, yeah, where did that bug so, bite uh, you? And how'd you get in the Air Force? I'm a, you know, I was I grew up in Colorado. My parents were school teachers, so I didn't have a big aviation background. It wasn't like, you know, I lived up at 8,500 feet, so there's no <laughs> airport really near me. But I yeah. just for whatever reason, you know, uh, I just always had a fascination with airplanes. From the time I was a kid, I I used to build airplane models, and my dad and I, you know, we actually built an airplane model out of balsa wood. We sanded it down and cut it down, and like from scratch, you know, and painted yeah. it. And, I had the uh, you know, GI Joe F-14 hanging from my ceiling in my room, and I was just had always been fascinated with aviation. So, pre-9/11, I lived about 25 miles from the Colorado Springs Airport. Okay. It was down a mountain pass, and my dad used to take me down to the airport just to watch planes take off and land. So, it was kind of in my in my system, you know. And then as I got a little bit older, I ended up going to the University of Colorado on a ROTC scholarship. Uh, came out of there, and I was a a whizzo in the Strike Eagle, so backseater in the Strike Eagle. Did that for a while, but I always wanted to get work my way up to the front seat, and so the opportunity presented itself, and uh, was able to do that. So um, I deployed to Iraq in the F-15E, 
and that was a spin-up mission for us doing close air support okay. doing about nine lines and supporting guys on the ground and i just kind of became fascinated with it i felt like it was it was pretty crazy to check in take a, an own, unknown situation and kind of figure out where everybody was and you know not have a necessarily a pre-planned uh thing but just go off the cuff you know off the cusp taking your bag of tricks we would say right and applying it to a situation so um I kind of fell in love with that, and I had always had a little bit of a thing for the A-10, so I put in to fly A-10s, and I was lucky enough to, to get that, so. Did you do one assignment as a Wizzo and then get picked up? I did, yep. And I actually applied before I was technically legal to apply, but I got picked up with the, with the exception that I had to wait. There's a prerequisite time. You had to be, you know, winged for two years or two and a okay. half years, I think it was. And so uh, I had to wait. I actually, when I deployed to Iraq, I already knew that I was going to go to pilot training. So the guys in the striking unit I was with let me fly quite a bit, and they, you know, I had a long time to kind of prep. So uh, it was good. It was good for me. Did well. I mean, what was your Wizzo training like? In weapon system officer backseat, sure. you know, the so strike it was, eagle. It was with the Navy. So I checked. You know, I checked out and I went down to Pensacola, Florida. I went through NFO school, they call it, uh, with the Navy. So it was my first Air Force assignment. Was learning about all the Navy jargon and you know the different <laughs> differences there. You know, so I still don't understand the Navy enlisted system. Like I, I don't either. I you know, have no my idea. sister's a my sister is a commander in the Navy. Okay, as a dentist, and so you know we talk about that stuff. But obviously the medical field is a little bit different than the aviation side of things. But uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like it'd be like I don't know. Chief Petty Officer, Dental Assistant. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, and they what? answer that with some kind of, you know, they answer the phone with some nine-letter acronym. That's yeah. Like, so, uh, yeah, but it's pretty interesting. So I would answer the phone. We yeah, would sit at the duty desk, and they'd say, "Hey, you know, Lieutenant in the Navy is an 03." You know, so I would answer the phone as Lieutenant Thorpe. And I was sitting at the desk, and I, all these my buddies in my class were calling me sir on the phone because they didn't recognize who I was. And, kind of interesting but. that's what you call a navy base and you're you know an 03 a captain and right. it's like yeah you get things done like yeah sure. it's captain waters i want to bring some jets down there right. and people are jumping you're like yeah absolutely because that's the same as a colonel in the air force <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> um yeah so i went through school there it was uh it was uh challenging just like any flight program you know what i mean so um and i well at the time there you could either go to b1s or f-15es out of the the strike uh, NFO track that I was on. So they had a, you know, they had two different tracks. One was at Randolph and then the, the strike fighter track was down in Pensacola. And uh, oddly enough, I, you know, I was like, I can't go wrong. Look, those planes are awesome. And then they brought a B-1 down and I crawled up into the seat where the Wizzo sits in the B-1. I thought, I don't know if I can do this. You know, they, they their window, they call it the day-night indicator. Oh. It's pretty, pretty tiny in there. So um, the ergonomics of the B-1, because when I did the Dias air show, my buddy took sure. me up in the B-1, first time I've ever been. And I was like, the EWO, I can't remember all the, if it's, they have like an electronic warfare officer, right? And then, yeah, like I think they have an offensive and a defensive systems operator. But yeah. sitting in there and seeing the window, so one, like you think like them in a cast wheel, just sure. in a bank, like the, the ergonomics are absolutely terrible. Sure. Like yeah. it would crush my soul to be sitting back right. there on like a, especially like a seven, eight, nine, 10 sure. hour, 11 mission. Yeah. Like, Unable. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, and anyway, so I, I decided that I really wanted to push for Strike Eagles after that and uh, about to do that. So I had a great time in the Strike Eagle. And then, you know, fast forward to when I was in pilot training, after all that work of being a student and getting grade sheets and all that MQT and all that stuff, I finally was in the enjoyable part of being in a fighter. And then I went back to pilot training and all just for the to take a beating again, you know. So there was multiple times when I was in pilot training going, man. I had a good, pretty good, you know, so, uh, that, you know, that was challenging, but I think my experience, I, by that point I had 600 hours in the Strike Eagle, 
and uh, you know the, the guys that were my age were guys like me who were fates. Yeah. You know, so. Go. The reversers again. It's great being at Sun and Fun. And yeah. I think the reversers on one uh, maybe a seven six was uh, quite loud. But, <laughs> but so you know, being an older guy going back to pilot training, right? And then you got guys like me being a fate first time instructor pilot sure. who's 23, 24 years old, and then you're obviously a little more seasoned. You've been to combat. There's a balance of like how like student with a lot more Air Force experience, sure. maybe not front seat time, but getting there. What were some of those challenges? How'd you how'd you deal with it, or were there any challenges with that? Uh, you know, we were there's a class you know a c class commander, so I was I was the guy that it was kind of the POC for everything, talking with the flight commanders and stuff. I, I think just with a mutual respect, I you know a, a FAPE was an expert at that airplane, and I was still learning how to be a pilot, so I knew that their role was to instruct me, and I feel like almost to every single person, the FAPEs were very. Uh, respectful of the experience that I had, you know, I'd been to combat, and they would ask me about things like that. So I didn't feel like it was too much of a challenge because, you know, I didn't walk in there with any kind of attitude right. that, hey, I know what I'm doing, or I've been there, I, I was there to learn, you know. So I think that was my first exposure, but now, you know, the more you, you know, progress in your aviation career, whatever it is, you know, I mean, you start finding yourself in those very similar spots where, like, hey, even if you're in the airlines and you're sitting in the right seat, you know, yeah. like you might have more time because you just that's where you wanted to stay sure. versus the guy sitting in the left seat. But yeah. again, it's just like this balance in the, I think the aviation world of like, hey, you might have a lot of experience, but maybe it's not in this plane and yeah. you've got to kind of. Sure, I think just having an open mind and being willing to learn all the time. I, 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 everybody said it before, but you know, the day I have a perfect flight is the day I'm just going to hang up my headset or my helmet or G suit or whatever it is, you know, right. and be like, it's because it's just, it's never happened. You know, there's always something to learn especially when you got a small iceberg like me and the penguins are constantly yeah. getting pushed off of there. So. Global warming really sucks because <laughs> my iceberg is shrinking yeah, on a exactly. daily basis. I'm like, if I definitely don't remember that or yeah. this or that. So any like advice you would give for someone in that scenario or, I mean, because again, I think we all find ourselves in that spot that key success, stressful sure. environment, maybe you're balancing to the, the relationship and some of the subjective, like touchy-feely aspects of training. You know, I, I instructed in the A-10 for a very long time, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the big things was just humility. We'd have students that would struggle with certain things, and 90% of it was just attitude. You know, we had guys that were really struggling but wanted to put the effort in. When you saw a guy who, you know, might be struggling with something, but they were open about it and honest about it, and they wanted to put the work in, and they came to you for help, you know, it was very difficult to, to do anything other than give them your best, you know? Absolutely. I think I was actually talking to a kid yesterday. And I was like, if you're willing to put in the effort and, you know, if, if you show the genuine interest and the passion for it, like that's step one. But there, I think the aviation world, you can find someone that if you're putting forth that effort, that someone's willing to match it because we all had sure. someone who helped us out along Absolutely. the way. Yeah. So you got to put in a little bit of effort, have a good attitude, but. Yeah, a thousand percent. And, you know, as, as the demo pilot, I would get asked that a lot and you are familiar with it too. And one of the the main things I would tell younger kids, especially the high school age, is, hey, control everything that's, a, that's in your control, right? You can control your GPA, you can control your extracurricular activities, you can control all these things. And then if you put yourself in a position where, you know, the numbers and the, the data make sense for you to be competitive or something, it's very hard for a person who ultimately makes that decision to not rank you up there pretty high. I think that's a great way of looking at it. control the things you can because there are pieces like sure. I'll get someone like how do I join the Air Force something like so basic right uh, that you're like man in today's age 
Google exists. Sure. So like sometimes you you need to knock out some of the the baseline things. Now you might have questions that pop up from it. Sure. But at least put in a little bit of the the effort and control Absolutely. the things. Absolutely. Your that you your DPA, your physical fitness, you know those are those are yours and yours alone. So maximize those things, and then you know the rest of it will I almost guarantee will fall into place. You know. Absolutely. All right. Pilot training. You track T thirty eight. So you're yep. on the fighter bomber track. Did you want to go back to the Strike Eagle, or what? What was the decision? You know, I was I was back and forth between it, and uh, on one hand, I knew that I would. It's you know, every time you go to a new airplane, there's new systems and new this and new tactics, and I knew that I could make a pretty seamless transition into that world. Right. Uh, on the other hand, I really had always like when I was down, I was based at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, and we were part of the same wing with the A-10s that were at the, down at Pope at the time. Right. And I just always had a fascination with the with the A-10 as well. And uh, so I went back and forth between it. And I thought, you know, at, at the time, most of my career, the A-10 wasn't going to be around forever. So I, my deciding factor was, well, I can always I, mean, I can go to the A-10, and then when it goes away, I can go fly something else. But if I go to the Strike Eagle, I'll probably be there for good. So right. I wanted to take an opportunity to fly a new fighter and, and uh, do a mission and fly a pretty cool airplane, you know? So I was casual, waiting to go to pilot training at Moody. I was with the HH-60 unit, which was awesome to be able to yeah. go fly and kind of see the CSAR piece of it. But when I was down there, that's when the Pope A-10s moved down. So right. I do remember the first time I heard the gun go off. I was actually like 10 miles away sure. in my apartment. I'm like, what was <laughs> right. that? Yeah. But it was really cool to then see combat search and rescue, how HH-60s, PJs, yeah, how absolutely. A-10s are doing rescort. Sure. That's a super complex mission set it really is yeah did you go through the sandy profile as i went up through a sandy two i was on the track to become a sandy one and then i jumped into the demo yep. thing and, and uh didn't really get an opportunity when i went back i was an ftu instructor so there wasn't much opportunity for that but i did um have some experience in it and i was able to uh i was able to you know go actually and teach csar and a couple different things i saw, taught csar at the tactical leadership program in spain Went to Slovenia and taught the PC-9 pilots some CSAR stuff. So I had some experience in it. I wasn't a Sandy one, but... Well, I mean, and can you talk to me, and for those listening to the, through the Sandy profile, because yeah. my understanding, it's obviously it's a completely different mission set than anything I've ever sure. done. But each one of those, like a Sandy 4, Sandy 3, Sandy 2, Sandy 1, is an in-depth upgrade. And then, like, to put all that together with, you know, just the logistics of the squadron and the training profile sure. to, yeah. to get the right guys upgrading at right. the right time with yeah. the right sorties. It's a very, I mean, it's a, and deployments and TDY is <laughs> right. like a very complex yeah, thing Yeah, it was, do. it was. But and talk to get, about the Sandy mission. Yeah, so to get, uh, you know, to, to put one of those together is, is akin to putting together a big strike package. You know, it takes a lot of assets. It takes a lot of coordination. And it, when we were at Moody, you know, we had uh, HC-130s, HH-60s, and you would think that we would just constantly do that. But between, you know, upgrading pilots, to flight leads and HC-130 upgrades and you know, HH-60 guys doing stuff. It was, it was a pretty uh, difficult thing to get to training. So that was, uh, but we, we did you know, push to do it. Um, so yeah, the Sandy mission, uh, search and rescue, we fly as the Sandy call sign. Uh, it can be really any number of, of aircraft, but the, the general package is a four ship. So you have Sandy-1, who's the, uh, the commander of the, of the Sandy, and then through Sandy-4. Um, Sandy three and four are generally assigned, I'll try to just simplify it a little bit, are generally assigned to escort the rescue vehicle, whichever, whatever it is, whether it's a convoy or a helicopter or whatever, uh, to the target area. So 
uh, whereas Sandy One is the overall commander, so he's he's running everything. Uh, and Sandy Two, as his wingman, is generally uh, he's there to kind of assist Sandy One. Sandy One's primary goal is to locate and authenticate uh, the the person on the ground who we're trying to recover. You know, so Jack, as we call him. Yeah. Um, Sandy Two is probably the busiest because while Sandy One is focused on that, his job is to be to take as much as he can off of Sandy One's plate and do the coordination with the Sandy Three element to make sure that they they're routing and timing and everything to get to to get to the area is safe. So yeah, it's a it's a super complex mission. It set. really is, yeah. And then to be honest, the Sandy Three mission is very different than the Sandy One and Two, so it's almost two separate kind of upgrades. Um, yeah. Because so it's like a Sandy Three and Sandy Four. You're escorting, or your primary focus is escorting those H860s or the rescue platform, right? Maybe a CV22 or sure, yeah, whatever it might be. But you're also flying in formation, you know, sure. and you're there's helicopters that are moving along at yeah. a, probably a relatively slow clip compared to an A10. I'll save my A10 <laughs> speed joke, <laughs> sure, yep. but uh, obviously the A10 is very well suited for that sure, and being yeah. able to, to stick with those rescue right. vehicles. So we want to keep, you always want to keep something pointed downrange in case of a pop-up threat, you know. There's a, a threat to a helicopter is much different than a threat to an airplane, right? So they're yeah. just the speed and the altitudes and things like that. So as the rescuer lead, you're trying to look out ahead of, ahead of the, the helicopter and make sure you're making a safe path for them to get into the target area. How long does it take for someone to go through an upgrade like that? Like if you're going to go through and like, let's assume no, like what's an ideal scenario? No TDYs, no deployments. Sure. Like what, what do you think that timeline would be? Uh, you know, you can you can upgrade to a Sandy 4 as a wingman. You know, that's okay. a wingman job. So it's uh, he's basically there to provide mutual support to Sandy 3. So it's not a leadership role per se. So you're gonna upgrade to Sandy 4 as a wingman. You gotta be a flight lead at least to be a Sandy 3. And then, you know, Sandy 2 and Sandy 1 are usually, you know, highly experienced warship flight leads to instructor pilots, and then obviously you need a Sandy instructor as well. So right. um, it's it's you know you just the flights wouldn't honestly take that long, but it, it's like different levels of experience that you get, it go a long way. So I would say a Sandy one has probably been flying the A10 for six years, five or okay. six years generally. Yeah, yeah, long time to get someone to the point where they're able to right. lead that mission. Akin to maybe like a mission commander in a, in a strike package. So okay. Experienced guy who's seen a lot of it. So. Gotcha. Yeah. So if you're watching this, obviously the backdrop changed. We right. went back in time from a Mustang to a Stearman, uh, but the audio, again, we're at Sun and Fun. Sure. The announcer started kicking off, so we had to move spots. With that, Habu, we were starting to jump into talking about rescort, so and yeah. combat search and rescue. Sure. So rescue escort you know we got to make an acronym or shorten everything up right. in the rescue military escort, yeah. yeah rescue escort i learned that in the navy because that's instead of uh, acronyms they just smash words together in the navy that's... so you know the uh <laughs> the instrument procedures was op nav inst you know so short for something five words you know partially put together but it's actually impressive i heard an acronym it was like Iceman the other day which is like some super nerdy engineering term like how does anyone come up with this stuff you know it's it's <laughs> yeah. actually rather amazing but sure. We were jumping into that, so I, I was kind of, I wanted to break down Sandy, what, like, sure. what is the Sandy call sign, Sandy 1, 2, 3, 4, how long does it take? Can you kind of break down combat search and rescue, Sure. Sandy, how the A-10 fits in it? So super easy, Yeah. not a complex topic. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. Go, yeah. You know, it goes, you know, back in time, as long as we've had airplanes, we've had people trapped behind enemy lines, and um, so, you know, the Sandy mission evolved as, a, you know, a way to 
to bring those people home. And you know, the reason for that is, you know, we pay a lot of money for our pilots. We value our pilots' lives, and, and it also gives them the confidence that they can go into battle knowing that if something happens to them, somebody's going to come and get them. So, uh, yeah. So they the uh, the Sandy call sign um, is the what we fly for our search and rescue missions. So combat search and rescue. Really, our our job in that is to you know locate the survivor, uh, isolate them from any threats, and then find a way to to get them back and re repatriate them. Um, so I was not a, I, I was not a Sandy one, but I did have some experience with it. Um, the general breakdown, it you know, it can be anywhere from you know, it's typically four airplanes, sometimes six, depending on you know what's available. And a lot of times they'll involve other airplanes that aren't they're in a Sandy mission, but they're not part of the Sandy package uh, to do diversionary strikes or assist in different ways. But the general breakdown is Sandy one is the mission commander who is um, basically. His main focus is on the, the people, the person or people who are on the ground who need to be recovered. So locating them, authenticating them, and making sure that he, he's just overseeing the entire mission. Um, Sandy 2 is, flies as his wingman, and it does a lot of the data keeping and transferring uh, information from the Sandy 1 element, which is the two uh, planes, to the Sandy 3 element, which is uh, generally tasked to providing escort of whatever uh, rescue platform it may, it may be, typically a helicopter or a, you know, an Osprey or something like that. But it could be, you know, a, it could be a, a striker vehicle on the ground that we can get a hold of. So anybody that has a path to, to pick that guy up uh, it would be the sole responsibility of the Sandy 3 element. So that's the general breakdown of it. Like I said, it's flexible depending on the, the mission and how many people and, and all that stuff. But that's uh, kind of the general breakdown of it. How long does it take someone to go through, you know, Sandy 4 to Sandy 1? Sure. What would be an ideal timeline for that? Uh, well, it, it, it's uh, depending on the experience level of the pilot. So you can be a Sandy 4 uh, as a new wingman, right? So a lot of times we'll get guys who are just out of the B course that are doing well. They get uh, selected for a Sandy 4 upgrade. And, and a Sandy uh, call sign is a, you know, it's a badge of honor to be part of that CSAR mission. So not every A-10 pilot is a Sandy. Uh, it's an upgrade for us. But a Sandy 4, Flies as the wingman providing mutual support to Sandy Three, who is the lead guy uh, providing the escort. So that that can be a wingman. A Sandy Three uh, has to at least be a two-ship flight lead because he's got to lead the the flight of the two there. Um, and so it's pretty common for a you know high-performing uh, two-ship flight lead to get selected to a Sandy Three upgrade. Then your Sandy Ones and Sandy Twos are typically four-ship flight leads and instructors, guys with a little more experience and who've you know flown the Sandy mission a few times. Uh, it's a pretty in-depth upgrade, and there's a lot uh, to it. So, uh, you know, Sandy 2, generally four-ship instructor pilot. Uh, lead Sandy is usually the weapons officer of the, you know, the squadron, you know, so he's got a lot of experience in it. Yeah, it's a complex thing to uh, to go through, not to mention you're obviously managing deployments, TDYs, yeah. normal flight lead upgrades, sure. doing close air support, and right. learning all the weapons and how to employ the weapons. Sure. Uh, well, and then, things. you know, just the, the amount of assets that it takes to coordinate uh, to get that to happen, you know, an HH-60 or, a, you know, an HC-130, there's, there's multiple platforms and we try our best to integrate and understand those each other's capabilities. And we do it so infrequently that there's very seldom just a, you know, a a sandy mission that's not somebody's upgrade. So somebody's new in the position that they're learning because it takes so much to put it together. So it's very uh, infrequent that just go out there and practice it. That's what yeah we call it like CT continuation yeah, CT, training. Or you yeah. got two guys who are like fully qualified in that position, right. not doing an upgrade ride. Sure. Because again, there's just not many opportunities to 
get all the upgrades done that you need inside right. a squadron. So yeah. CT is always a nice thing because you can kind of have a gentleman brief and debrief, usually sure. depending on how it goes. Yeah. Uh, and you're not having to do it in depth. Right. Students doing the debrief, then the instructors doing the debrief. Uh, yeah. You know, taking Absolutely. taking six so at hours. Davis Monthan, where I retired out of, they had uh, they have an exercise there called Angel Thunder. It's a big uh, a red flag rescue is another name for it, and uh, they bring people from all over the place with just a focus for a couple weeks on doing search and rescue. So one of the good deals that I was able to get was uh, I went down to Columbia to teach CSAR with the Colombian Air Force. And then I was, because I had a lot of experience going TDY as a demo pilot and stuff, I was tasked with flying with them with their six ship from Columbia back to Arizona. So it was That's a multiple awesome. day hop on these uh, a29 Super Tucanos, which was pretty Just cool. jumping up from Columbia. Yeah, yeah, we went from Central Columbia to Northern Columbia, jumped, stopped in Kingston, Jamaica for gas, stopped at Homestead, you know, and then uh, through Pensacola, San Antonio, and then eventually in, but it was a, that was a great experience. I did the air show in Rio Negro, Colombia. Okay. I didn't think my team was gonna leave. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a phenomenal time down there. And then seeing the Colombians as they're progressing and coming up, I know they're looking for a new fighter because they fly the Kafir. Yep. Uh, but I think it's time probably for them to upgrade yeah, to an yeah. F-16 or whatever they- Yeah, so they, they love the, the Super Tucano and that it was a very young and very um, highly trained squadron. I was really impressed by their professionalism and the, the amount of training like just their inquisitiveness. They were, you know, asking me questions all the time about tactics and how we do this and how can they do this better and just searching for feedback. And I, I, overall, I was just really impressed by them for a very young squadron, you know. Different world too, like, I mean, they're fighting in their backyard. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's something. Yeah, so at, on the ramp, you know, there were, you know, several A-29s that were just set up for training missions and then, you know, four others that had live bombs on them. And that's just part of the deal. Like, some days you're going out to do live stuff and some days it's you know just a training mission so yeah man that's wild what do you think about the future of combat search and rescue i mean the fights seems to be changing and yeah you know it's i think it's always going to be a capability that we need to have because it's not just airplanes you know we've used combat search and rescue for multiple other things other than just pilots being behind enemy lines so it's definitely um a capability that we need to retain and, and if not for the fact that we're losing pilots, just for the fact that, like I said, that confidence of knowing that I'm gonna be willing to push across the line, knowing that if, if, if it goes poorly, I'm not just left. You know, I know that someone's gonna come get me and they value me. And they, I mean, there's, our our CSAR professionals really take that seriously, that, you know, that whole lifestyle that others may live, you know, that's what they say, so. Yeah, I only had that brief time being a casual lieutenant, waiting to go to pilot training sure. in the HH-60 squadron, but that others may live, seeing like the dedication to the craft, Integrating that once the A-10s came down to Moody doing and seeing combat search and rescue. Sure. And then you know, you're hearing about it and you're talking about it and that's a big part of it. When you're going to push across the line, if something bad happens, you know you're not going to be forgotten sure. and that the United States is going to make every yeah, effort absolutely. possible to go in there and, and rescue you. One of the really interesting things as we, as we go into this unmanned uh, part of our, you know, history is, you know, one of the, obviously you, it doesn't do you any good to to get a downed pilot and then lose three more or a helicopter right. full of people on the way to pick them up. So, you know, some of the unmanned things that I'm hearing about in an unmanned rescue vehicle, pretty interesting, you know. It's a wild time. It'll be interesting to see, you know, just, I, I mean, a joke, right? Like 15 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist, but we see how much our world has changed sure. with the smartphone. Yeah. Uh, what, ChatGPT, I mean, everyone's obviously talking about that a good right. bit. Like, yeah. 
things are rapidly changing, and I think it's just going to continue to evolve. As you know, the Air Force talks about next generation air dominance fighter, right? Unmanned aerial systems, like sure. yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a different time. Yeah, I, you know, I think that there's always going to be conflict or the potential for conflict at very varying levels, right? We've got major combat operations, we've got next gen type of stuff, and then I think there are always going to be low intensity conflicts as well that you know require that. So. Hey, so I want to pivot just a little bit. Let's talk about your first deployment in the A-10. Yeah. You went to Afghanistan, right? I did, yep. Can you talk to me about that time frame in Afghanistan, what that was like, big picture, and then we talk about some of the missions you were sure, doing? Sure, yeah. So I went to uh, my first deployment. So it was my second deployment. My first one was to Iraq for OIF, and then uh, my second time was to Afghanistan. And to be honest, just to preface it, when I went to OIF, it was a very slow time period. Okay. The whole entire deployment, not much was going on. There was occasionally something would happen. So that was my mental model of what a conflict was like. Right. Uh, and then when I got to Afghanistan, I was a relatively new flight lead, showed up in Afghanistan on my, on my first, very first mission in country. We ended up supporting the troops in contact or a convoy had gotten hit. And it was just, I mean, hair on fire. I, I mean, I remember kind of coming off to the tanker and realizing I was breathing like I just ran a mile, you know? And it, like, it was definitely my heart beating and it was, you know, thrown right into it and it stayed generally pretty busy like that um not you know not all of it but it's right. pretty busy so well it's all i mean again rough right could be 90 percent boredom 10 percent pure pure adrenaline yeah, excitement sure. flying a fighter but doing some of those missions and close air support afghanistan obviously all these conflicts evolved year to year sure. day to day and things were, were going on what was it like as far as like rules of engagement you know coming you got the big old gun, which is a direct fire weapon, usually sure. collateral damage estimate CDE right. is less of a concern right. uh, than dropping a 500 pound bomb. But there are definitely times, and I've talked about on the podcast, I think over the years, like civilian casualty is absolute something you don't want to have happen. Sure. But we saw the enemy, uh, you know, they can use the media just as we do, whether yeah. uh, good or bad, or I mean, mostly sure. bad, right? Where they're spinning right. like, hey. Yeah, app. take it to make it, use it to your advantage, right? But, you almost had to be a lawyer at certain points here and some of the guys in the conflict when it came sure. to employing weapons. Were you seeing any of that or was it pretty? Uh, in, in 2008 and 2009, it was less restrictive than the guys that went in the 11 and 12 time frame where it was, a, you know, there were a lot more, you know, stating the ROE that you're employing under and things like that. So I didn't have that, um, but it was still, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was very interesting because the guys who were controlling our airstrikes were generally not on site, you know, so they were in the, uh, tactical operations center talking to us and so we a lot of times were giving the picture to them for them to give the picture the approval back to us to execute whatever you know whatever mission we were doing at the time so that was that was interesting that's a different dynamic that was my oir deployment you know typically you're not talking to someone who's on the ground sure maybe someone on the ground is talking on a sat phone back to someone else who right. then is talking to you giving you the strike authority Play, doing that communications ball back and forth obviously takes time and can induce certain sure. challenges and yeah. errors into the equation. Yeah. But most, not most, right, but it's not uncommon that a unit might not have a JTAC, a Joint Terminal Air Attack Controller, sure. who is on the ground translating ground speak to pilot speak to make sure, sure the bombs and the guns go in the right spot. Right. Um, were you seeing, I guess it's probably a mix, probably of units that had JTACs incorporated and units that didn't have so, JTACs? Yeah, we were always assigned to a JTAC on a frequency for everywhere, you know, but they were area, you know, working zone defense, if you will, right. right? So that we'd be supporting multiple different forward operating bases and talking to a certain JTAC, and we would contact them with things that we were hearing. 
And we would typically try to get a frequency of the guy who's actually on the ground there. Uh, but yeah, so there was a lot of you know, radio techniques to, to affect the battlefield that we kind of evolved over time. Like, hey, I can talk to this guy. Um, one of the interesting things that we started doing was when we would have you know, Apaches in the area, we would, get, we would learn their frequencies because they are part of the you know, maneuver element. So they don't really need a, a JTAC approval to strike a target. But if we can see a target with a targeting pod, I can definitely laze a target that they can then strike, you know, without, and that's usually while we're waiting for the coordination to happen to, to step it up to the next level to shoot, you know, the 30 millimeter or drop a bomb. Uh, so, yeah. I saw that because I did MC-12s in Afghanistan, so yeah. King Air, and I do remember one specific night, actually there were a couple nights where the Apaches were, you know, flying with that unit and watching the Apache do work yeah. is rather impressive, but was one particular night we found a guy placing an IED, like, you know, hole in the center of the road, sure. straight line across, you know, the wire and everything. And by having that feed, and, you know, we're able to pump that feed back to jock and then lays uh, for yeah. the Apaches who just pop up over the hillside, hit the laser spot, and then the IED yeah. guys are no longer, yeah, no longer with us. So it's my, my most memorable combat sortie involved working with Apaches, and it was just kind of an interesting, uh, interesting mission, you know. Yeah, tell me about that. So. The reason it was memorable because it was really a mistake on my part from the get-go. We stepped out of, a, of operations to go into a troops in contact. So we knew at the time we're going to support this fight. It was a dusk, dusk time, and that was usually when most of the fighting occurred. So the enemy knew that that dusk period is where, hey, our, our visual looking out the window isn't great anymore, but our night vision goggles aren't really up to full effectiveness either. And it's also at the time of thermal crossover where the hot, you know, the hot targets that are as the temperature changes from day to night, everything becomes kind of the same temperature. So your pod is limited, your NVGs aren't effective, and you can't really see down into the valleys. So we got sent out to the Korangal Valley where you know the guys were taking fire. And uh, I, when that happens, you know it's like you launch out and you're trying to get out of there as quick as you can. So sure enough, it happens to be a day where my number two engine doesn't start. So I have to step to a spare. So now I'm already like, you know, guys are on the ground, fighting's happening, they need us overhead. I have to step to a spare, so I, I say, tell the crew chief, hey, will you grab all my stuff? I'm gonna go do the walk around on the other airplane, we'll hop in. Well, one of the things that we do, we put our night vision goggles in a little uh, thing on the side of the cockpit, and I forgot about them, because it was still light at this right. point, you know, so it was light. Got into the new airplane, launch out, and it's starting to get darker and darker, and uh, I, I say, one's going goggles on, and I, I look down, and. I don't have night vision goggles. So we're in the troops in contact over the mountains in Afghanistan. And now I'm limited to the, you know, men's safe altitude. So I'm stuck way up there, which for up there was, you know, 19 or 20,000 feet, yeah, so, which is, you know, nosebleed in an A-10. Yeah. So I got a wingman who's got night vision goggles. I don't, so I end up just holding high. And I'm looking as it gets darker and darker. I can see in my targeting pod, but I'm, I'm pretty much limited level flight up there. And, uh, you know, there's artillery, Apaches are checking in, there was a, a, um, a small convoy, like a detail, that got trapped out of the base and got attacked on their way back in. So we had to basically clear it so they could get back to the FOB. So we're trying to support them. And, uh, you know, so we're doing yo-yo uh, operations where we're, th there was periods of time so we could maintain constant coverage that my wingman would go to the tanker while I was on scene and then back and forth where I would go. So I had to, I had to get on the tanker about four times with no NVGs and back to the fight, you know, and I could, I'm just seeing through a soda straw on my screen. Yeah. I, uh, you know, ended up dropping a JDAM just from a level, you know, and, but I was able to affect it by, you know, lazing 
targets for the Apaches that were there. And so it was pretty cool. Although it looks a lot different with no NVGs when you see in the real sparkles outside. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, that was a sporty one. Dude, that's wild. And that's the thing. Like, I remember stepping to spares. We would typically step and start an hour prior to takeoff, which is significant. Yep. Sure. Be able to align your bombs. The bombs weren't aligning. You had some system. But yeah. even with that amount of time, yeah, depending on where you broke in that start sequence, Sure. I mean, I broke it like 50 minutes, you know, right. into that. Now, the amount of stuff you have for an eight-hour combat yeah, mission. Yeah, exactly. You know, one, just don't fall getting out of the jet going down the ladder, but sure. don't forget anything. Because, again, you got to build your yeah, little nest. You've and, got your combat survival vest with your weapon and all that. And it's just, you just feel very, you know, bulky. And yeah. you've got map packs and all these things. So, you know, I, I, it's clearly my fault for not pre-flighting it, but I just was in such a hurry to, to get out there. It was, so, and, and then... To make matters worse, we're finally going back, and we get a chariot uh, call to escort a helicopter from Bagram down to Kandahar. So I, now I have no night vision goggles, and I have to use a targeting pod to escort this helicopter, you know, for whatever it is, 200 and some miles down to Kandahar. And for those who know the chariot directs, like chariot, that's sure. the CPAC, that's the Combined yeah, Force exactly. Air Component Commander, the three-star who runs the right. entire air war. And so yep. when chariot directs... One of, one of my longest combat sorties, and I had no NVGs the whole thing. So. <laughs> purely to my own uh, my own fault but. yeah that's brutal and again just thinking around flying around in the mountains of afghanistan at night yeah the challenges with that one in the a10 and then when i hear you say you had to go find the tanker this is something i didn't fully appreciate like in the f-16 and a block 50 radar and you have an interrogator right which it's great to get a radar lock but to have the interrogator to interrogate their uh sure, to make walk, sure that it's like okay i'm actually locked to the right thing so sure. you go rejoin uh talk me through rejoining the, the a10 at night in Afghanistan and Iraq, how does that work? Uh, you know, we had um, a data link at the time, and we were at the time that was fairly new. Uh, but we actually would use the other airplanes sometimes, the radar-equipped airplanes, to put out a data link track to help us out. Okay. So if yeah. they could, you know, if a strike eagle could lock a guy up and and put a data link track out, and so that was helpful. But other than that, it was you know uh, just uh, GPS points in the sky, you know, and we'd talk about where they were in relation to that. So it was a lot of discussion about. Hey, I'm on a 330 radial direct to at point whatever, you know, and they, all the refueling points were uh, GPS points that were named. And so we'd have a thousand feet of separation. And there was plenty of time when there was weather, you know, where we would circle around a thousand feet below them, just trying to take take the time to rejoin with them. Yeah, just working your way up until you're 500 feet below them or whatever yeah, to yeah. hopefully. You know, and, and I would typically try in an A-10, especially if I could, climb up high and build some energy so that when I found the tanker from high to low, I could, I'd have a little bit of of excess energy to because in an a10 trying to climb up at medium altitude to join a tanker you know you're, it's a losing game pretty much so well it's funny in the f-16 you know combat like for some reason the tankers occasionally find themselves up in the high 20s right and you're in mid, you're out of min a, in and out of min a b sure. just to stay on the boom you're like right. am i actually gaining gas right now or am i just throwing right. up gas and then so we had we obviously didn't have the afterburner so our technique for that was called a toboggan so what we would do is have the tanker start a descent you know they would just start a slow vertical speed descent and that would allow us with a little bit of extra you know to stay on the boom so yeah it was a it was interesting you know and if the tanker was heavy they would oftentimes have to put flaps out to fly slow enough you know to fly with us that's awesome i did rejoin on a tanker that was refueling f-18s at night and i was not aware they were fueling F-18, so I came in with about 150 knots of my normal <laughs> smash that I could kill pretty quick, sure. and then uh, turns out I had like 250 knots of smash. So right. It's a, you know, well, it's I, I had an interesting one on the tanker as well. Uh, I'm not painting myself in the best light here, but <laughs> so I, 
you know, when you're refueling so much, it just gets to be second nature and your mind's kind of on, you know, what's going on, on the ground and getting back quickly. So I find this tanker, I've got a nice high to low rejoin. I'm, I'm gonna scream in there. I'm just gonna park it in, get gas and go. And so I do this fairly tight rejoin. I pull a lot of G's to kind of, you know, slow down so I can just park it right in there. And I reach up and our uh, air refueling handle and the gear handle are pretty close and it's kind of the same motion. So I'm looking up to try to rejoin with this guy and I just reached and grabbed the landing gear handle. So I put the landing gear down at, you know, at 20,000 feet. And I looked down and I was right at the gear speed. So it actually didn't even overspeed the gear because I had put, you know, burned off so much energy in the yeah. turn. But I can only imagine the boomer, you know, seeing me like this and the landing gear comes down and then the guy's just gone. So it's five or 10 minutes again until I can catch up to <laughs> I instantly regret this. Yeah. I wish I could get those knots back. Yeah. yeah I love those type stories because I think it also, I, we all make like those someone would say like a thousand of those are Absolutely. happening right and you're sure. just kind of like learn from them and then it's also a good take like there are guys who unfortunately because the ar door and the vipers back here off the left well the fuel master fuel cutoff switch which is safety wired sure is lo conveniently located right next to it yeah so there are stories that guys have unfortunately sure fuel cut off and then it gets real quiet yeah, in the sure. jet pretty quick so <laughs> yeah. not not what you want but you come back from Afghanistan. Can you talk to me a little bit about your career? Because you eventually end up doing demo. Yeah. So I guess so, it's kind of parallel. I deployed uh, to Afghanistan. I'd been at Moody Air Force Base for close to three years by that point. And uh, they had, at the time, they had an A-10 East and an A-10 West uh, demo team. And one of the guys who was the current demo pilot, Dusty Green, uh, was you know a guy that I got along with pretty well. And I just kind of learned a little bit about it. And you know he was coming up on the end of his demo tour. It was just something that was interesting to me. So I... You know, they, the group commander said, hey, if you're interested in doing demo, put your name in the hat. And uh, I did. And I'm, you know, I was lucky enough to get picked up to do it, um, which was, you know, pretty cool. So I got to yeah. I got to tour along with uh, with Dusty towards the end of his career and go to several shows and learn from him. And it was really interesting. He had he was so well respected uh, in the demo community and, and he was just did a great job of uh, introducing me to people and, and making me feel welcome. And so by the time I did my upgrade and started on the demo circuit I felt like I knew quite a few people and it was you know it was he really paved that uh, way for me to it's pretty smoothly it's pretty cool I mean I think it's a testament too. like we're still connected to the the air show yeah, world like it's a, it's a fun sure it's a fun group of people but it does lend to obviously being immersed in it it's super helpful when you have someone who's teaching you obviously to fly the demo but then all the other stuff that comes along with it like introducing you meeting and helping you kind of sure. get a foothold yeah nobody you know nobody can really make it in here without the help there's yeah and the the, the demo and the air show community is really tight-knit you know and i'm still in contact with those people so i'm actually here with uh jive kirby yep. who's one of my you know flying mentors and one of my kind of my personal heroes you know he flies so many planes yeah he just does everything and he's, <laughs> a, he's an amazing pilot and he's been you know they've always just treated me really well and so i'm helping out here and uh so pretty pretty glad to have made those connections to do this so. yeah that's awesome what so in doing demo you happen to get hit with sequestration at a time what were those Dude. demo years like you got any like highlights from it like really good memories best best part of it yeah, so my first year was pretty normal although there was a lot of discussion about hey the air force budget and you know are we going to keep this so it was looming a little bit uh and then after the, at the end of the first year they said hey we're going to cut the demo teams but we want to keep the air force heritage flight and so the first year I had 30 shows on the schedule and then the second year was 10 and I, I went from being a fully, you know, very competent and experienced at that point demo pilot 
to only being able to do three non-aerobatic passes and then the heritage flight. So it was a little bit frustrating, um, but you know, still a great experience for me. It was just, uh, it was difficult to see where the decisions were being made because across the Air Force, budgets were tight, you know? So uh, obviously our defending our country is a priority, but honestly a very close second to that is, you know, prepping the next generation and also, you know, marketing our capabilities to the people that we defend, you know? So the people, that, even the people that aren't gonna join the Air Force are taxpayers and they deserve to know that there's some of the best people in the country right. are out there defending them, so. What do you think the hardest part of the demo slash air show world was for you? Uh, man, um, it was constantly uh, being in a new place and you know every week reinventing small procedures. So you'd show up at a, at a site with, you're parked in a different place, you've got a different set of people that you're supposed to be talking to. So the logistics, and as great as my maintainers and my team chiefs were, uh, you know, it was just still trying to figure out how to get in and out of the show and how to get who you're supposed to talk to for what. And you had to be pretty creative on the road because you didn't have the full complement of maintenance things. And so, you know, these guys were awesome. My maintainers would, you know, they, they would just make stuff happen, you know, and find, you know, I remember one time driving, somebody drove a wheel down in the back of their own truck, you know, to put on the, on the jet, so. I think I had, I mean, many stories like that because it is the maintainers that make it happen. Absolutely. And what's yeah. incredible, but uh, I had my first like three air shows. I hard broke and, and I mean significant maintenance, brake failures, all sorts sure. of stuff. I land. It's actually I landed my third show. I did a low level into uh, the show. It was a great day. Yeah. Land. I'm like, it's code one, fellas. You're welcome. I didn't sure. break this one. Yeah. And then we had an assistant pro soup there who's helping us out. He walks around the jet and he's just shaking his head the back leading edge of the horizontal stab had delaminated. Oh, no. It was digging into the fuselage. Oh, no. So we ended up having one of our guys drive down the part, but what was really cool to see, we're on a Marine base. There might be like a hundred, like Phillips head fasteners that attach this thing, right. and they're all epoxy. So they had to carve out each one of those Phillips heads with a little razor blade. It was impressive to see those guys do it. The Marines jumped in, our guys jumped in, you know, in a matter of like two hours, it was done. Normally it's something that takes 12 hours, sure. just carving out epoxy from this to change it out. Right. But the ingenuity, the forward thinking, and like the push it up from the maintainers, sure. for me, was the best part because it helped address some of those shortfalls and challenges. Right. Like you said, like, where am I parking? This is different. I broke something. How do I, you know, you just don't have those support assets. You know, and I would say to the maintainers who might be listening to the podcast that one thing I really, I just grew a deep appreciation for them because a lot of times we step out, you know, say I'm going to do a Sandy upgrade. My mind is full, you know, I've got times, I've got people to talk to, I've got all these things. And so unfortunately, sometimes we don't have the time or take the time to really show our appreciation to the maintainers, but we do. And you can, you know, yeah. you and I can both say that it, we know, especially when I got to spend some more time off duty with these guys to, to just to see how serious they took their jobs how professional they were just what great humans they were i'm still good friends with all of them yep. you know and uh so I, I would say that sometimes we owe those guys th this just to tell them that they're super appreciated and, and uh, we don't when we're stepping and we're late and all these things are going on we don't always get the chance to express that but that is a phenomenal point because i think you're 100 right it wouldn't happen without them but to see their dedication that's the cool part about demo there were times where um, you know, like you, I would always want to go out in the flight line when I was in the combat squadron sure. and hang out for 
four hours with a maintenance guy. The time just isn't there between, you know, doing your additional duty, mission planning, upgrades, briefing, debriefings, you just can't make it happen. Sure. Demo, I, you're still busy, but there are a couple times where I could sneak out weather days. I remember one time we had three demo jets, all three motors pulled from them. And yeah, they let me like turn a wrench, yes, and, like pat yeah. me on the back and say, hey, good job, you sure. know, now get out of the way. But it's fun to be able to go out there and really kind of immerse and see what they're, what they're doing. Dude, like this is, you're pulling, a you know seven million dollar motor out sure. of the back of this plane right. and you're sliding a new one in there like right and and you you know that my life depends on it you know i'm yeah. gonna go take this jet in front of all these people and you have that level of professionalism to make sure that it's important to you as it is to me that was actually one of the things i really enjoyed also is like once in a while getting out there and the panels are open and hey what is this yeah. what is, you know that because we also don't get to put our hands inside the guts of the jet very often right you know we show up and they got it ready and it's it's you know, ready to go. So I got pretty good at safety wiring the, uh, That's awesome. the travel pods, you know? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, again, you don't get to see it because everyone's doing their job and there's no time to really do anything else. And I'll say, I name drop Stephen Mullins. He was my avionics tech for the first year. But I remember we had, so in the Viper, one of the things you do, you have a pinky switch to move the throttle to off, but you have okay. to pull that pinky switch, rotate the throttle out, to shut the motor down. Okay. One of the things you do before you even start the jet is to rotate that and make sure you can't do it. We just got a new jet that had just been flying BFM and another squadron. I get in the jet, I rotate it and rip the throttle right off without engaging oh, the yeah. pinky switch. Like, not a good thing if you're in a sure. high aspect fight and you're ripping to idle and going to max back right. and forth. Because you can shut the engine down. But I remember sitting in my office and right, you know, the jets are right behind me and Steven, I think for like eight hours, freezing cold day, he's just hung upside down over the ladder, changing out and running all the wires you know yeah. it's not an easy thing to do all these different chain you know yeah that's yeah, it's incredible stuff to see these guys yeah. work so it takes a lot of patience you know to, to get in there sometimes like what why is this who designed this you know like yeah. how did this put this bolt back here you know it takes this one special cable and like sure. small person to get it done it's incredible to see what the maintainers do yeah absolutely well Habu, before we wrap up here man i always like to ask guests if you found 15 16 year old Habu walking down the street is there any advice tips or tricks something you tell them to do different Oh man, it's plenty soft, of things. Plenty of things. Yeah. Question, um, man. You know, <laughs> I, I think I will say that mistakes that I've made along the way have been the things that put me where I am. You know, so sometimes you know I wanted to be a pilot right out of uh, you know out of school. Didn't happen for me, but I knew that that was something I wanted to pursue. And I, I think back a lot. You know, if I had gone straight to pilot training, would I have gotten in the A10? Would I have flown this, or would I have had the experience or the maturity at the time to do it? And uh, so. You know, there's, I wouldn't say that I have regrets. I have things that I would do differently or mistakes that I've made, but um, I have thought about it. And that's, you know, the one thing I mentioned earlier was to tell other people is you, all of the things that you can control, maximize those, right? You can keep yourself physically fit. You can work on your grades. You can do all those things. And then that added with just being a, a humble, willing to learn kind of person and it, it, your the world's going to be your oyster, you know? Dude, perfect note to finish on Habu, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the bottle of Jack. Absolutely. I'm glad you were able to go hang out in Dubai for that. That was, a, a, again, a fun air show when I did it. So yeah. Glad you enjoyed it. No, it's great running into you here, man. It's a perfect platform to come see all this, you know, and once you get the bug for seeing air shows and all the different airplanes and the things that are out here and, and the people behind them, it's, uh, you know, you kind of get addicted to, to coming out here and yeah, I know, we, and we just scratched the surface. We didn't even talk about, like I was mentioned before, like the Indy 500 flyover yeah, initial yeah. mix, you know, Vipers right. and A10s sure. and all that stuff, man. You know, I mentioned it to you off 
camera before we started that you know I retired a year ago and it's finally having a little bit more time to reflect of the things that we got to do you know and like man I was young and I was getting paid to fly this you know amazing historical aircraft is going to go down as one of the best you know platforms in our country's history probably in the history of the world right very unique airplane very unique mission set and I was getting paid to do that and then I was getting paid to do it and fly in formation with you know historical World War II aircraft right. and the people who fly those who are also just amazing you know so I've I've had a little bit more downtime to sit back and go I was pretty cool you know it's tough to pull yourself out you know and take a you know 50,000 foot view when you're down in the weeds but yeah man it's pretty good pretty good world so yeah absolutely. I appreciate, appreciate you having me man thanks brother take care cheers